Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, a podcast all about the subject of antinatalism created by antinatalists. My name is Amanda Oldfans-Sukunik, also known as Forever Wolf Films on YouTube, and today, Mark J. Maharaj and I will be speaking with legendary antinatalist philosopher, author of Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming Into Existence, The Human Predicament, Debating Procreation, as well as a whole host of other works, David Benatar. Wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank, thank you. Nice to be with you. Now, before we get started, I just wanted to give a shout out to the antinatalism community for um, their work in uh, suggesting uh, questions for this episode. You've, you folks did a great job of uh, giving us material to work with. So uh, sincere thank you to all of you. So, Professor Benatar, um, when you began uh, in, you know, writing Better Never to Have Been, when you were first, um, you know, skirting this issue within um, your university uh, in intellectual circles, um, I can imagine that the response to this topic must be very different than uh, the response that perhaps you get now. Um, can you tell me a bit about what it was like in 2006 when Better Never to Have Been was first um published um, and you know when you first began this what what kind of reactions you got? Well perhaps I should say that I actually began working on these subjects academically much earlier than that so I had some early papers in the uh, American Philosophical Quarterly uh, about, the, about these ideas uh, but they did not receive sort of wide attention at that time they began to receive more attention once the book was published and the initial reactions to the book were largely in academic journals, and they were quite uh, quite negative and dismissive. Uh, I thought the criticisms were quite unfair, but uh, they were largely negative. And then over time, there have been some more positive responses, uh, both within the academic community, as well as critical ones, uh, but also a take-up beyond the academic community. And uh, certainly I've mm. received lots of correspondence over the years uh, from people who found that these ideas have resonated with them. So I suppose I've been disproportionately contacted by people who've been sympathetic to these ideas. Uh, and the people who are unsympathetic have uh, criticized them, not to my face, but more remotely and indirectly. How is antinatalism seen in the professional philosoph uh, philosophy community? Um, for example, at universities and um, philosophy institute, uh, institutes. Um, and how has that changed over the years? And where do you see it going from here? Well, there certainly seems to be a growing interest in the subject. And I've seen a lot of papers engaging these ideas. But the vast majority of them are, of course, critical of antinatalism. So I think, as I identified quite early on, there is a uh, quite a pervasive optimism among analytic philosophers, uh, perhaps more optimism there than among some of the so-called continental philosophers. And I think one of the manifestations of that is a rejection of antinatalist ideas. So an increased interest, but it tends to be a critical interest. Right. There are some, of course, people who have come to the defense of antinatalism, but I think those are a minority, at least so far. So the term antinatalism has a very interesting history. Um, from what evidence we have, it seems to have sort of have begun as a philosophical term. Then that meaning was sort of lost, um, and it became uh, a term to mean something sort of something else, something that sort of relates to statistics and uh, population control. Um, what can you tell me about the history of the term as you understand it? Well, I've been asked on a few occasions whether I coined the term, and I really don't know the answer to that. Uh, I 
I can't recall hearing it anywhere, but it is entirely possible that the term was used by multiple people working independently. Uh, and uh, it has grown in popularity. I think you're correct that the word is used in different ways. Sometimes it's, it's used to refer to a categorical opposition to all procreation. And then sometimes it's used in a more restrictive sense to refer simply to a restriction in the amount of uh, procreation that takes place. So if you think, for example, about uh, government policies to diminish uh, population growth or to, 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 to lower the birth rate, you might refer to such policies as anti-natalist, even if they're not categorically opposed to all, uh, to all procreation. So I think anti-natalism could in one sense be viewed as taking place on a spectrum from categorical opposition uh, to, uh, to just some restricted, uh, restriction on, on appropriation. Uh, and I don't really think it matters much how we uh, use the term as long as we're clear about what we mean when we use the term. As I'm sure you are aware, antinatalism is still not yet a word in any known English language dictionary. Um, do you think that this will eventually change? Um, myself and others have tried quite hard, actually, um, to get that to change. Um, I do have a petition on change.org um, trying to draw awareness to the fact that it's still not yet a uh, language in English. Um, what do you think it will take to make that happen? Um, and how do you feel that the term is best defined? Um, and would you feel that the wiki definition is sort of the best one? Can you stick with that? Well, I am aware of uh, your efforts in particular to uh, get this word into the dictionary. And I think that's a, a wonderful endeavor. I don't know what it would take. Uh, that's, I don't know enough about the workings of dictionaries to, to know what it would take to get the word in there. It would be nice to have that recognition, but I don't think we are reliant upon it. We're, there are many people who are using this word in English and uh, we don't have to use it or not use it depending on whether it's in the dictionary. Uh, if it's used enough, then I imagine in due course it will make its way into the dictionary just perforce. And then there was a second part to your question about the wiki definition. I'm afraid I don't know exactly what the wiki definition is. Perhaps you should let me know. Yes, uh, Wikipedia defines antinatalism or anti-natalism is a philosophical position and social movement that, this, that assigns a negative value to birth. Right. I would have some concerns about that because although antinatalism, the word natalism does refer to birth, obviously there's some liberties taken there. It's, 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 it's opposition to bringing, I'd say, sentient beings into existence. Birth is in a way a marker for that, but it's not, I believe, the actual point at which somebody would come into existence, in which a sentient being would come into existence. So I'd have that uh, concern uh, about the about the definition. If you read it to me again, I'll see if I can identify any others. Um, so just to clarify, you would, you would wish to make the point of sentience a lot more explicit? Well, I think it's not so much about being an opposition to birth as an opposition to bringing beings into existence. And if you ask okay. well, what kinds of beings are those, I think it is specifically sentient beings. I'm, I can't see what the argument would be for opposing bringing into existence non-sentient beings. I think perhaps Perhaps the argument is um, that, let's say, all, all life on the planet were to go extinct, all sentient life were to go extinct, is there some possibility of the non-sentient life uh, giving mm. rise to sentience once again, or something of that type? Right. Well, I believe that's... Yeah. That would be, yeah, that, I can see that reason as an indirect reason. But then again, of course, 
uh, life evolved from things that were not living. So if you're yeah. trying to avoid uh, life arising, it's not enough simply not to produce more life. They're the basic building blocks that, from which life arose, and it's possible that that would happen again. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how large the chances are. Uh, so yes, I, I can recognize that as a kind of indirect reason, but I don't think there's an intrinsic reason why one would be opposed to bringing into existence a non-sentient being. Okay, interesting. Uh, perhaps we'll touch on a little bit more of that later. Um, you, you wanted me to read the, the wiki definition one more time? Thanks, yes, if you don't mind, because then I can yes, see of course. something else. Mm -hmm. uh, Antinatalism or anti-natalism uh, is a philosophical position and social movement that assigns a negative value to birth. Okay, so if we change that to negative value to bringing beings into existence, mm -hmm. uh, again, I suppose another concern is whether it's simply assigning a negative value or whether it would sometimes be suggesting that we outright ought not to do it. So it could have negative value, but the negative value might be outweighed by other considerations. And I'd certainly say there's some antinatalists who would have that view, but that's a relatively weak view in comparison with the one that suggests that we ought bringing new sentient beings into existence. So uh, again, I'm not suggesting that that definition is bad in this respect. Perhaps mm -hmm. it's good because it's more inclusive, uh, but wouldn't fully capture the views of some antinatalists who would not simply be assigning negative value, but who would be going one step further and saying that negative value is not outweighed by other considerations and therefore we ought not to be bringing these sentient beings into existence. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, all right, well, well, thank you for that, uh, Professor Benatar. Um, let's 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 uh, just leave that for now, and we'll move on to the next question. Um, do you find, as time goes on, you have more students coming to you um, that are antinatalists that are like applying to your school because they're antinatalists, wanting to study the subject with you, and like sort of making that their topic? I've certainly found uh, students who've approached me because they're interested in in topic in, in this topic. I don't actually go out of my way to speak to students about this. Sometimes it will come up in the course of a discussion because those ideas are helpful for resolving some other philosophical issue. But I don't tend to go out and incorporate this in my undergraduate curriculum. Right. But there are certainly students who are aware of my views on this and who come and speak to me about it. Um, I, I teach in a far corner of the earth, and so we're not, hardly a destination for uh, for. Uh, philosophy students. We do get some from elsewhere, but uh, there aren't many who are coming to study antinatalism specifically. Okay, interesting. I've been wondering that for quite some time. Um, when you were uh, writing Better Never to Have Been in all of your antinatalist works, um, what have been some of your major inspirations as far as books or perhaps other media? Well, I don't think inspiration came from there. It just seemed to me that these ideas were, in a way, obvious. I'm not saying the arguments were all fully developed, but it seemed obvious to me for a very long time that bringing new sentient beings into existence is problematic, that it's not in their interests. In fact, uh, it's actually harmful to them. And I suppose what did uh, lead me to write about these things was that I realized that these views that I held solved some quite otherwise intractable problems, particularly in, in population ethics. And I didn't believe that those problems were adequately considering the antinatalist ideas. And so that's really what led me to write academically about these issues. Okay. 
Um, can you comment on your thoughts of some of the, you know, antinatalist authors of the past, um, Chiron, Mainlander, Zapp, um, even Ligotti? Um, what are your feelings about these authors? Good, yes, yeah, so I should clarify, I only learned about some of these people, like Arthur Schopenhauer and Peter Silzapi and others uh, later on, when, uh, when people said, well, there's a, a great similarity between your conclusions and their conclusions. And then, of course, I went and read up and learned more about them. And uh, I think there's lots to learn from each of these different people. Uh, many of us have different styles. So the style of writing of some of those thinkers and writers is, is different from mine. And uh, some of our arguments differ as well. Uh, so yes, I think it's, it's good to read broadly on these, uh, on these topics. Um, transhumanist philosopher David Pierce uh, gave a question. Um, he asks, how does he respond to the argument from selection pressure? Adopting or not having kids can't possibly lead to human extinction. Staying child-free merely further intensifies selection pressure against any genetic predisposition to antinatalism. Remember, I'm not under any illusions that people are going to, en masse, stop breeding as a result of my arguments. Uh, I'm making an argument for why we ought not to bring new sentient beings into existence. And there's some people who will act on that and, and others who won't. Uh, so I'm not imagining for a moment that I'm going to have some global effect and bring about the end of, uh, of human procreation. And if you suggest, well, uh, if you have the anti-natalists not breeding, then you're going to have an entrenchment of the natalist ideas. Well, how do, how do anti-natalists continuing to breed uh, make the ultimate uh, goal any uh, more attainable. In other words, any couple has it within their control, the decision whether to produce a, a child or not. And if they make the decision not to bring this child in, that piles of suffering and death of that child, any children that that child might in, might in turn have, um, that's what's within your control. If you have that child, and even if for genetic or environmental reasons, it's more predisposed to, to anti-natalist ideas, you've passed up this golden opportunity to prevent the suffering. Um, so I've, I've gone back and forth with David Pierce on this thing because I don't understand his objection. Um, when he's talking about uh, intensifying selection pressure, this is uh, what, some evolutionary argument? Sorry, are you asking me that? Yeah, because... Uh, well, have you heard about yeah, this? It is, an, it is an evolution. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, like your ideas are becoming popular and with uh, like there are going to be within a select population, people that aren't going to it because of antinatalist ideas. And does mm -hmm. that have any effect on the population or? It's very hard to tell what the long-term effects of increased number of people not breeding will be other than to say that, uh, the children they don't bring into existence won't suffer and die. Yeah. So the, the, the sort of obvious implications of a decision not to procreate, and then there are all kinds of speculative considerations. And once you get into that realm of speculation, we really don't know what's going to happen there. So I, I think we should any individual or any couple should be more focused on uh, the effect that they can have on avoiding the suffering of their next generation. Uh, part two of the question is, is David Benatar opposed to the creation of new babies per se, or only babies who can suffer? A distinct from a world of Joe Cameron's, the imminent designer babies revolution makes this question topical rather than fanciful. 
Well, I, I think it is still fanciful. In, in the words, when I see it, I will believe it. Uh, I, I can't imagine that we're going to be able to produce babies whose lives are going to be devoid of all evil. You know, you'll remember that my argument suggests that even if there's some small amount of evil in a life, it's still better not to come into existence. I, I think it's utopian to think that we're going to be able to produce beings, sentient beings, that will have zero bad in their lives. It's not that I don't think we're simply not at that point. I can't imagine our ever getting to that point. I think this is a utopian idea to think you can create a sentient being that will contain zero bad in its life. Uh, and I agree. It, I just, if it happens, then let's, let's have a practical discussion about that. Well, I can really tell you what the implications would be of my view. My view is if you could produce a sentient being that had zero bad in its life, then we should be indifferent between bringing that being into existence and not bringing that being into existence. It wouldn't be a harm. It wouldn't be a benefit. Uh, so that's the sort of theoretical implication of my view for a case like that. But I don't believe that is ever going to happen. I mean, at the very least, that being is one day going to die. And that's a bad. And so it's better not to create a being of that kind. Can you be a, a, a transhumanist and antinatalist to work towards that goal? I don't think there's any problem in walking, working towards a goal where the quality of life is improved. It might be the quality of human life, or it might be that the quality changes that one makes leads to the life looking less and less human. I've got no problem with that. Uh, but I do think it is utopian to believe that you'll ever get to the point where the beings that you're creating will have zero bad in it. Um, jumping back to the, because uh, you mentioned that your argument uh, suggests um, even if there's a little bit of bad or a little bit of pain, it still wouldn't be worth bringing that being into existence. I believe like the pinprick argument is um, one of the criticisms of say negative utilitarianism. Um, how do you respond to that argument? Um, because intuitively, uh, when I have conversations like this and people are like, so even if a pinprick, you'd say that that's not worth uh, bringing the being. And it's quite difficult to have that conversation when, if you were to concede that without some type of pain threshold that we were to set. So let me say this. <clears throat> what I do in Better Never To Have Been is point out that my view has the implication that if a life contained only a pinprick of badness, that's the full extent of the badness that it contained, it would be an implication of my argument that it is better for that being not to come into existence. But we need to ask, how much better is it for that being not to come into existence? Well, a pinprick's worth, so very little. And what that means is that that consideration might well be outweighed by other considerations. So let's imagine it's the case that parents are going to get a vast amount of benefit from bringing this child into existence. And the child is only going to suffer one pinprick in its life. That's the full extent of the evil it's going to suffer. But it may well be that the interests of the parent outweigh that very minor harm that the child uh, would endure. So there's a difference between saying that it's not in the child's interest to come into existence and to say you ought not to bring the child into existence. And that's why I make quite clear that the axiological asymmetry argument that I provide in Better Never To Have Been is by itself not sufficient to make the case for antinatalism. You need to add the arguments that come later about the actual quality of life. 
So when you combine the, asymm the axiological asymmetry with the, uh, with the arguments about the extent of, of evil within the life, then you reach the antinatalist conclusion. Okay, yeah. Um, in the conversations I've had about antinatalism, uh, people assume that I'm doing this for the environment. What's your opinion about the voluntary human extinction movement? So as you're aware, in Bed Inevitably, in the arguments that I offer are what I call uh, philanthropic arguments. So they're arguments that are concerned with the well-being of the being that you bring into existence. But elsewhere, I've advanced what I call a misanthropic argument. And what's characteristic of a misanthropic argument for antinatalism is that you say bringing a being into existence would be harmful to other beings. And I think that the environmental argument is an example of a misanthropic argument for antinatalism, saying producing more people is going to harm other existing people and other uh, non-human animals, and that's why we shouldn't be producing more people. I think it's a reasonable argument. I don't think it produces quite as categorical an opposition to procreation as the philanthropic argument does. Because if the human population were much, much smaller than it is. And if the impact of that population on the environment was, was minuscule, like it was for much of human history, then uh, you wouldn't have a categorical argument against procreating. You could produce a child with very little impact on the environment. And uh, it's not clear how that kind of environmental argument would tell you not to procreate in that circumstance. Right. So another question is about uh, Samuel Scheffler and his book, Death in the Afterlife. Uh, the questioner wanted to uh, find out about your commentary on uh, some of the arguments that he makes. So Samuel Scheffler in that book argues that we really require future generations in order for our lives to have meaning and purpose. If you think about the scenario in which we knew there'd be no generation after us, much of what we do would be utterly pointless. And uh, I accept those arguments, but I don't take them to be a good argument for producing new generations, because I think what they do is create a kind of uh, procreational Ponzi scheme. So each generation produces another generation in order to give itself meaning, but that new generation needs to produce another generation in order to give its self meaning. And this goes on and on until, as with all Ponzi schemes, uh, it goes bust. And then there will be some generation that will uh, pay the price that could have been paid much earlier without all the intervening suffering. Um, so uh, we'd like to ask you a little bit about abortion. Sure. Yes, because uh, I don't have the paper in front of me, but you wrote a paper on fetal pain, right? Mm. And I think... Um, well, in, in Better Never To Have Been, I, I, if I recall, you said the, it would be ethical in the early stages of gestation to abort the fetus, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. What I argued with my co-author in that paper on fetal pain was that it's likely that sentience emerges much later in gestation, around 28 to 30 weeks of gestation. So I think that's the crucial point at which, or the crucial stage at which uh, the being comes into existence as a sentient being. And so before that, I think abortion would be 
morally required. I don't think it ought to be legally required, but it would be morally required because you're still at that point preventing a sentient being from coming into existence. Okay. But once the sentience emerges, now you're dealing with an existing being, and I think it has some at least rudimentary interest in continuing to exist. And it's not that abortion would never be justified in that later stage, but now there's some consideration that needs to be weighed up against the interests of the fetus in continuing to exist. And would the interests of the um, of the the carrier, um, like in uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson's paper, uh, mm. would that uh, defeat? Uh, well, um, would that be uh, like? Uh, the strong, strong, strong argument for uh, being okay to uh, terminate the pregnancy. Like, do you have any criticisms of that of that argument of Thompson? So, so, well, I'm not sure that's the best way to approach this. So, so, what I would want to say is that once the fetus has an interest in continuing to exist, there's something that would need to be outweighed in order to justify the um, the abortion. Okay. Um, and I think different people could have different views about how strong that consideration needs to be. I think certainly maternal health and well-being would be among those, although it's hard to imagine quite that late for the decision to be delayed. But uh, yeah, if the mother's life were in danger or her well-being would be endangered, I think that would be a very compelling reason to override that minimal interest of the fetus in continuing to exist. But oh, if I, see, the, I see. If it were, if it were, just a whim on the part of the mother then uh, morally there may not be a sufficiently compelling argument but that doesn't mean to say that legally she ought not to have the right to make that decision so we need to draw the distinction between what is morally appropriate and what right somebody ought legally to have so although on the legal question i am pro-choice with respect to abortion on the moral question i have the pro-death view prior to the onset of sentience and after the onset of sentience, I think things become more complicated, and then you need to work out what uh, interests are being weighed up against one another. Okay, I see. I mean, I, I, um, I suppose I have a difficult time um, contemplating what the good enough reason would be to keep the child alive, considering, uh, you know, after that point of sentience, considering what awaits that person in life. Right, but then what, why wouldn't you say the same, let's say, with a day-old baby? Why would euthanasia the baby not be morally required? That does and it, get a lot trickier, yeah. And, and where do you draw the line? How old must the child be before uh, you're no longer entitled to euthanasia for those sorts of reasons? So the, the point I think about antinatalism is before the being has come into existence, there really are no competing considerations. There's nothing that needs to be outweighed. This kid's got zero interest in coming into existence. And so it's an absolute no-brainer. Just don't bring that kid into existence. But once a being begins to exist, now we are in this very murky territory and there are all kinds of unknowns and we're weighing up various considerations and it becomes difficult. Uh, so that's an important thing to recognize. I think. Do you find that, it's, that there needs to be more of a conversation of when it's ethically permissible to, sort, to end a young child's life? I mean, based on, I mean, certainly if there's, if there's a severe illness. Um, there's also the ins instances of very young children asking to be euthanized. Um, and uh, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. Well, in general, I think there ought to be much more discussion about the conditions under which people, uh, people's lives should be ended uh, for, for their own interests. Right. So I, ha I have advocated a more liberal view on assisted death. 
and I think we should certainly be having more of those conversations. But I recognize that there are complexities there. So on right. the one hand, somebody could have the view, look, you've got this you've got this free exit. You can get out of all of this suffering. And some people have the view that death is not bad. And so there's zero cost here. Why not just take it? Uh, and then other people say, well, no, but death isn't evil of, its, in, uh, of its, uh, itself. And so we have to weigh that up against your interest in avoiding the evil things within life. And this is why I say once the being exists, there's now a complex discussion to be had. Am I in favor of having the discussion? Absolutely. But if you can right. avoid all of that by not bringing the being into existence in the first place, that's the, that's the ideal scenario. All right. Um, so I'd like to talk to you a little bit about uh, activism. Um, so I know in Better Never to have been, um, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I apologize. I know you, you, know, you don't consider yourself an activist and you, you don't see uh, your words or your work acting as activism, I, I, I suppose, um, if I'm saying that uh, in a way you would agree with. Um, but certainly the idea of antinatalist activism has uh, really developed a lot in the last 10 years. Um, I myself very much consider myself an, an antinatalist activist. Um, even things like this podcast, I definitely consider an act of antinatalist activism. Um, and it's, it is taking some rather interesting forms in recent time. Um, I would like to ask you about um, Raphael Samuel. So um, Raphael Samuel is a, a young guy in India who um, didn't even go through with the lawsuit, at least not yet. He threatened to uh, sue his parents for bringing him life. Uh, and this had an enormous international explosion of interest uh, around the subject of antinatalism. Um, I'm just curious what you thought of that, uh, that phenomenon that happened in India recently. Well, perhaps I should say first that you're correct, I don't see myself as an activist, but that doesn't mean to say I don't think there is room for activism. Mm -hmm. uh, I certainly recognize that place. I think it's important to, and um, please, there are people who are doing that. There's a separate question about this particular case of um, the, the suit against uh, the parents. And I just don't know enough about this case. I don't know if he was serious. I don't know if it was a tongue in cheek. I don't know if it was purely to uh, bring antinatalism to, uh, to world attention. I, I don't know enough about the case to, uh, to make a judgment. Okay. Yeah, no problem. Um, I will say, yes, he was serious. Uh, he is serious. I think he is still exploring avenues as to how a lawsuit of that kind could be done. Um, mm. Certainly, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to achieve. Um, he, I think, uh, like myself, kind of takes the same page out of uh, a similar antinatalist playbook, where um, one of the most effective ways that I found personally of getting people to consider these ideas in any way, shape, or form, or have the conversation in any way, shape, or form, is to mix the subject with humor. So mm. he, um, he does have a very tongue-in-cheek approach. He wears like a beard and he kind of models himself after almost like an Indian guru kind of character. Um, but underneath all of that, he, he is serious about his uh, anti-analyst uh, endeavors. Right. He also seems to be in good terms with his parents, which of course yes. is not incompatible. <laughs> right. Yes. Which, yes. Is a, but it is a, nonetheless. That's a very interesting aspect of his, uh, of his, of his develop development of his work. Um, okay, um, so I wanted to ask you briefly, um, we have become aware in the last couple of years that there seems to be, um, well, there's a rather large, like over 60,000 members uh, worth of, of people within a, um, a primarily an uh, Arabic um, speaking antinatalist group on Facebook. Um, and I even did a, um, 
I have a sort of a separate show called Evil TV where I interviewed somebody from this uh, mysterious Arabic antinatalist world. Um, so I was I was just curious if you knew anything about that part, you know, antinatalism happening in those parts of the world, like Syria, like Egypt, uh, specifically Lebanon. Um, and if, if you're if you are have been to any of those Facebook groups and if you have been contacted by uh, people in that part of the world interested in antinatalism. I have a, a vague familiarity because I have been contacted by a few people, not many. Uh, as you may have gathered, I'm not on the internet much, so I'm not on Facebook, right. I'm not on social media, mm -hmm. so I certainly haven't seen all the things that, you, that you're seeing, but I do have some, some awareness of it, put it that way. Okay, yes, absolutely. Uh, interesting, yes. Um, so one of the biggest uh, activist projects that several of us have, uh, have, have tried to attempt, um, specifically Andreas Moss, who I think you know, um, mm -hmm. is, is working to get antinatalist works, older antinatalist works, be they videos and specifically books, translated into other languages. Um, especially considering that uh, there's this big interest in other parts of the world, like India, like uh, Egypt now. Um, so I was curious what other languages Better Never To Have Been is currently available in, if there are more on the way, and if there is anything that uh, the antinatalist community can do to help make that happen, make more translations mm -hmm. happen. Yes. So there are currently translations in Czech, Japanese, Turkish, Italian, and Korean. I'm, oh, okay. not, I'm not aware of any other forthcoming translations at the moment. I am from time to time contacted by people who would like to translate it into another language. Mm -hmm. uh, but the logistics of how this works is that Oxford University Press had published the English uh, version of the book. Uh, they don't want to enter into an agreement with the translator. They want to enter into an agreement with the publishing house of the foreign language. And then I there'll see. be an arrangement between the between that foreign publishing house and the translator. Okay. So what I would say is if there are people who uh, would like to see the book in another translation, uh, if they're able to contact and, and elicit the interest of a publisher in that language, uh, that publisher could then make contact with Oxford University Press. That's the best way to secure those sorts of translations. Okay, excellent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. Uh, I mean, what kind of activism would you like to see antinatalists doing more of? That's hard for me to say, because as I've said, I'm not an activist myself. I don't believe right. I have a good sense of how to go about this, what the best methodologies and techniques and strategies are. So I really need to leave that to people who have um, much more experience and, and uh, capacity for that. Okay, that, that, that's more than fair. Um, do, do you have any thoughts on the uh, Antinatalism magazine? Um, have you read it? I have, yes. I think I've seen two issues, and it was very nice to see that, and I appreciate all the efforts that we're putting to producing those. Yeah, they're beautiful, and I, I do believe uh, uh, issue three is on the way pretty soon. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm, I hadn't, hadn't known of that, but that's good to know. One of our uh, listeners asks, um, please ask him his opinion on if we have a moral obligation to tell others that they should not reproduce. That's a difficult question, because if I say yes to that, and that suggests that you should go around telling everybody, you know, you ought not to be reproducing, you ought not to be reproducing. And I don't think that would be very effective to, to do that. And so it's hard to suggest, well, you've got an obligation to engage in this highly ineffective activity. So I, I, I suppose I would want to resist the question. I think it might oversimplify uh, the, the, the situation. Okay, that's all right. I, I would suggest that if, if there were an opportunity, then one shouldn't be too averse to 
taking up that opportunity. If you find somebody who's susceptible to the idea and you can engage in, in a discussion with them, then perhaps you should do that. Uh, but going out of your way to tell everybody sitting next to you on the bus or the train or walking down the street that they ought not to be reproducing, I can't imagine how that's going to work and therefore I can't right. imagine that you'd have a duty to do that. Uh, right. I, I certainly wouldn't tell people to do that either. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wanted to, you know, I, it's certainly true that, um, you know, we, we unfortunately have a lot of people in the antinatalist community that, you know, are struggling, that, uh, that mm. uh you know, are, do have depression, do suffer from, uh, do suffer a lot with this, um, this conclusion about life. Mm. Um, and I think for me, uh, personally, I know for a lot of other people, the activism side of things, um, is an important, uh, balm to that in some respects, mm. um, because we are, we are basically told our entire lives that there's nothing that we can do about life sucking you know that there's mm. just there's there's no there's nothing we can do about it and i think antinatalism does illuminate this fact that yeah there's something absolutely very real that we can do about it and that is in the prevention of it um good so well, i can yeah. i can certainly see that i think that's an important point i just want to add that there are other things that people can do as well mm -hmm. and that is to make their own lives and the lives of people around them less bad than they would otherwise be so right. one thing is to prevent future sentient beings, uh, but another thing you can do is just to make the lives of existing beings, including oneself, as uh, least bad as they could be, to, to relieve them in some way. Right. Well, that brings me to another another question. I mean, um, you know, uh, in Mendham, who I brought up before, the the one who coined the term ephalism, I mean, he always sort of frames it in is this idea that you know antinatalism ephalism is 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 Plan A. That is what we would mm. like to see happen as far as how the suffering on planet Earth is is dealt with, and that is the the best uh, outcome um, is for you know sentient life to just cease to breed in this very uh, you know ethical non-procreation manner um but that we always have to keep an eye towards the plan b and the plan b is doing these things to make life better that in that in the absence of um ethical extinction that uh we do have to perfect societies and we do have to perfect uh um ethics and um and the way that we treat each other um so you would you would more more or less agree with that you'd say Indeed, but uh, perhaps I should just say that there's another option between the two that you mentioned, extinction and improvement of existing lives, and that is just the, re the reduction of the number of people that there would be. So mm -hmm. although it's very unlikely that through arguments we're going to bring about human extinction, it's uh, very possible for individuals to decide not to bring other human beings into existence. And in case of breeding animals, not to breed certain animals and bring them into existence. So those are decisions that are within the control of individuals and I don't think they should underestimate the importance of those decisions. Just because you can't right. stop everybody from procreating mm -hmm. doesn't mean to say you shouldn't do what you can do to stop a future person from suffering, potential future person from suffering. Right. Okay. I understand that. Um, I just want to touch very briefly uh, as a connected issue with, with veganism. Um, mm -hmm. I have two questions. Um, there's a, there's probably one of the largest disagreements within the antinatalist community is, is about veganism. Um, and quite a lot of antinatalists are vegan and quite a lot aren't. Um, do you see it as a major problem that a lot of antinatalists aren't vegan? 
Well, I'd want to know what their arguments are. It might be that they're not vegan, even though they think they should be vegan. And then mm -hmm. it's just perhaps a question of weakness of will or something of that kind. Or it might be that they've got some in principle reason for why uh, they needn't be vegan. I'd want to hear what those uh, arguments are. Uh, but I do think these two views are quite closely allied in the sense that if you are trying to minimize evil in the world, uh, two big ways in which you can do it is by not producing more suffering beings and by not eating animals and their products and thereby reducing the demand for new uh, non-human animals being brought into existence. So uh, I think there's a connection between them. I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that they logically entail one another. Really? Uh, but uh, I'd I don't think they logically entail. So let's imagine there's an let's imagine there's an already existing animal, and let's imagine it gets I don't know run over, and you mm -hmm. could eat that flesh. Well, many vegans wouldn't eat that flesh. It's not clear to me how eating that flesh would contradict anti-natalist arguments. I see what you're saying. Okay, it, it might not even contradict all vegan arguments, but right. it might contradict some vegan arguments. Uh, or uh, perhaps a slightly more controversial case, somebody, there's an existing animal and somebody kills that animal, uh, let's say because they think that uh, a non-human animal doesn't have an interest in continuing to exist. Well, that's logically compatible with antinatalism, uh, but I don't happen to agree with that view, but it's logically, um, it's logically compatible. So the big question is, what is the argument underlying the opposition to veganism and does that argument work or not? Okay, I see. Um, sort of related to that, uh, Tejas asks, many important arguments against procreation seem to apply to all sentient beings. Do you think there is some inconsistency in applying them only to humans while continuing to contribute to procreation of sentient beings of other species? There may well be an inconsistency. But look, I think we've got to face that we're all inconsistent in, in some way or another. It's very hard to be entirely consistent. Now, mm -hmm. I don't mention that as an excuse for our inconsistency and sort of justification for being inconsistent, but I think it might lead us to be perhaps less judgmental of people's inconsistencies. We can point them out. We can say there, um, there's a problem there, uh, but we also have to be willing to recognize that we might be inconsistent in some ways. So I suppose what I'm trying to do here is differentiate between uh, whether there's a good argument for holding positions that look incompatible, whether they are in fact incompatible or not incompatible, and then what view we take about a, the person holding that inconsistency. Just how judgmental are we of that person? How dismissive are we of that person? And there I would sort of caution against being being too nasty, because it may be that we are susceptible ourselves to similar criticisms. Okay, uh, well, with some of the remaining time that we have left, uh, I'd like to talk uh, a little bit about ethylism. That, that term ethylism, I, I, um, I, I'm not sure why it's necessary, because if antinatalism is opposed to all sentient life, does ethylism go beyond that to opposition to all life? Not really. I mean, ethylism really deals with, it defines the culprit uh, in life as nature, as uh, DNA, essentially, as evolution, that evolution and DNA are really the biggest problems in the universe, um, and, and calls for 
you know, all sentient extinction. Um, you know, there was this period of time in 2011 to 2010, 2011, where the subject of antinatalism and your work better never to have been kind of had this like crazy explosion on YouTube where there was like this huge amount of conversation happening back and forth. Um, and a tremendous amount of the conversation that was occurring at that time really defined antinatalism was solely uh, about human life. I mean, that was pretty much uh, um, the, con the idea that it would apply to all sentience um, really was rather rejected by most. Um, and I think that, you know, better never to have been, while you did mention the animals, it didn't really cover that as a full subject. And I think that did unfortunately give a lot of reason to people to sort of not include the animals in their consideration. Um, and so that is very much why I think F a big part of why ethelism did come about. Ethelism um, is, uh, is life spelled backwards and it's a term that was coined by um, the YouTube philosopher in Mendham. And, um, and yes, so that is a, a, essentially a call for all sentient life to become extinct. Um, I suppose it would, include uh, all non-sentient life just in the sense that if there is some um, chance that you know should all sentient life go extinct as we were talking about before and non-sentient life be left you know what are the chances of life arising what is the point to that kind of life still existing what purpose does that does non-sentient life truly serve um, but yes it, we, it, we would an effortless would not consider uh, non-sentient life anywhere near the same level of alarm and, and um, mm. consideration as sentient life. So I suppose what I would say there is that I, I do believe I was clear in Better Never To Have Been that the arguments I was advancing apply not just to humans but to all uh, sentient beings and that I was focusing on humans for specific reasons among them that I thought people would be most resistant to the implications for human procreation. Uh, but I, right. I, I believe I was clear in, in saying that that applied more generally to all sentient beings. Uh, and for the reasons that we discussed earlier, I wouldn't go further to think that we ought not to bring new life of a non-sentient kind into existence, except perhaps for the indirect reasons that you've mentioned, but there'd be no intrinsic reason uh, to oppose that. Okay, yes. Um... I mean, I do, I, I, uh, I do agree with you. I do think that there was a, there was a lot of wisdom, uh, honestly, in, in, as you said, like applying it to all, to all nature, all sentience is a much more difficult, as, I, as I've learned, is a much more difficult argument for people to consume. And so I think there was a, a wisdom in, in, for the most part, writing about human life. Um, but I think I, if I'm not mistaken, and I apologize if I am, I think you're um, you're commenting on sentient life in Better Never to Have Been was like more of a footnote, and I honestly think a lot of people skip that. Oh no, it wasn't so a footnote. It, it's in the text. Uh, quite okay. early on, I do speak about how the arguments would apply to non-human sentient animals as well. Okay, but it's fine. I mean, I mean, if if aspect of it can be brought out that's absolutely fine but i want to just make clear that my position all along was that this right. applies not simply to humans but to, to non-human animals who are sentient as well okay excellent well, well i'm certainly happy to hear that and does that uh, extend to ai as well uh if that if we understand the ai as being conscious or sentient then yes it would extend to that too 
could you see AI becoming uh, sentient or conscious or just some type of philosophical zombie? I, I don't know enough to answer that question. So I, I, the point I would want to make would be a conditional point, that if the AI would be sentient or conscience, conscious, then I would be opposed to creating AI of that kind. Okay, thank you. Um, out of curiosity, do people ask you about ethelism with any regularity? Um, and if so, what are you typically asked? Uh, and I was curious if you had watched any in Mendham videos by any chance. You're the first person I think who's asked me about ethelism. Really? Interesting. Okay. <laughs> it does speak to the bravery of our movement, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, it may just be that I'm not in those circles, uh, but uh, no, nobody has asked me about that before. Okay. But perhaps it's because I'm engaging more with academic philosophers and then they may right. recognize that my position does in fact oppose bringing new sentient life into existence, whether that is human or not. Mm -hmm. And so they may see this as not distinct from the position I've already espoused. Right. Yeah, and that is fascinating because, I mean, I, I, I think in the general internet world, there really has been this tremendous amount of, uh, of confusion and they're very, they're very, very separate and people get very, very angry a, a lot of times if you suggest that animal life be included in an antinatalist perspective. Um, mm. And I think that as time has gone on, they've certainly done a lot of merging, uh, whether people wish to use the term ethelism or not. Uh, I think sentiocentric antinatalism is sort of um, becoming more of a, of a, of a, of a term that's being used. Um, but that is fascinating. I, 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 I never would have suspected that the same, kind of uh, the same kind of disagreement didn't carry on to other circles, but that does make some sense, I think. Um, um, you know, it's, it's becoming a more common argument throughout antinatalism, I think, that, um, you know, if you had this theoretical red button um, and it was before you and it had the power to just basically shut the universe off, no pain, no, uh, no suffering, no, no horrible deaths inflicted on anybody in the process, just it would just be a universe off button, um, would the most ethical um, decision be to uh, to press that button. Now, it's 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 not that this has a corollary to real life, and we're saying let's find that button now mm. um, and press it. Um, it I what ethicists are essentially arguing and pleading with in the world is: can we find ethical means of extinction? And we don't really have a plan or a roadmap to that. To that's not a how you achieve ethical extinction is certainly not a, 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 a painting that the world has ever you know, produced quite yet. Um, but in, for the sake of a, uh, a thought experiment, um, do you believe that it would be the most, most ethical uh, thing to do to press that red button? See here, I think it does depend on what one's background theory is. Uh, I try to be theory neutral in a better never to have been, to provide an argument that did not depend specifically on a one or other ethical theory. Uh, there was a place in the book where I pointed out that what theory you uh, had would affect your view on a phased extinction. Uh, uh, but this case of the benevolent world exploder, I think is a scenario where uh, your background theory will make a difference. So if you believe, for example, that people have a right not to be killed, well, then it's not the case that pressing this button that kills everybody instantaneously and painlessly 
uh, would be the right thing to do. Although you may be producing a very good outcome, you'd be violating people's rights in the process. If on the other hand, you're a negative utilitarian, then you'd say, well, that's exactly what you should do. So I think that this is the kind of case where you're gonna have people disagreeing depending on what their background theoretical approach is. Speaking of which, are you a negative utilitarian? No, um, a lot of people have assumed that my arguments are utilitarian and I don't take them to be utilitarian. I think they're equally compatible with, uh, with other theoretical uh, positions. Uh, what is your normative theory? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, I'm just going to say that uh, my arguments for antinatalism are theory neutral. So I think it's a mistake to read them as utilitarian arguments. They're compatible with utilitarianism, but I think they're compatible with other views as well. There is compatible with deontology as well? Yes. Okay. Yes, I think so. Mm. I very much think that, you know, if, if we are on this path to, uh, of human extinction, that it would be this absolute tragedy if we were to go extinct before the animals did. That a, as much as human beings are awful <laughs> and have failed mm. in this myriad of ways, we are the only thing on planet Earth that even has a, 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 a tiny speck of this potential to um, extinct the animals in some sort of ethical manner. Um, and that's, you know, the, the, essentially the vehement conclusion to leave them uh, in the hands of nature uh, and for whatever natural extinction eventually perhaps awaits them um, would be uh, essentially our, our worst ethical uh, misstep uh, to take ourselves out of the equation before them. Um, can you give me some thoughts on that perhaps? Yeah, I don't think we're going to take ourselves out of the equation in an ethical way. I think we, if, when we take ourselves, if we, if it's we who take ourselves out of the equation, it's going to mm -hmm. be in an, it's going to be in an unethical way, uh, or it's going to happen through forces completely external to us, like a, a meteor. Okay. Uh, so I, I don't hold out much hope that humans would, would cause animal extinction in an ethical way. What we're seeing at the moment is animal extinction in unethical ways. Right, of course. Uh, that, that we're very good at. But yeah. I, I, I do not think it's likely that humans are going to lead to animal extinction in, a, in an ethical way. Do you feel that um, really most forms of antinatalism uh, would hit a sort of ethical threshold where we wouldn't be able to continue... Um, any farther without uh, breaching, uh, uh, you know, an unethical, an unethical means, so to speak? Well, I certainly think there are heavy restrictions on the means that we can use to bring about extinction. Right. And, uh, I mean, some of those can be pretty obvious. I don't think we should go around murdering people and, right. uh, nor do I destroying animal lives. And I, I just don't think that's the way to, to bring about the, the goal. I, I don't think the goal can be brought about practically uh, through, uh, through ethical means. That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is we'll go extinct uh, for other reasons. And so we've got to sort of recognize what the limits of our power uh, are. So, so the interesting thing is antinatalism is in a way a kind of pessimistic philosophy, mm -hmm. but sometimes you get this overly optimistic addendum to uh, the pessimistic philosophy. So people believe, well, we ought not to be bringing being 
being new beings into existence, and we can actually ethically bring about human and other animal extinction. Well, that second part, I think, is overly optimistic. Things are a lot worse. We're not going to be able to do that. There are smaller things that we can do, like not having a child, like not breeding another dog. Uh, those are things that are within our power. And the more people that sign up for that, the more, um, more of such effects there'll be. But to think that we're going to ever bring about human extinction through arguments, not going to happen. Depressingly, it's depressing, but it's not going to happen. Well, I don't, I don't believe it will happen specifically. I mean, I think arguments is where, it, if should it have the potential to be uh, uh, achieved, arguments is essentially where it would begin. Um, mm. And I guess that would, that would lead me into um, a question about policy. I mean, are, are you mm. in favor of, of whether it be ethalist or antinatalist? Do you, do you think at all about uh, you know, anti this, this topic moving into uh, policy at some point? I think there could be some ethical policies, uh, but there'd be many unethical policies. So mm -hmm. let's imagine that uh, there are people who want contraception and they're unable to access contraception. And we have policies that, uh, that make contraception available to people who want it. Well, that's going to be, uh, all things being equal, a perfectly ethical policy to have and a good one to have I'd be in favor of a policy of that kind. Mm -hmm. uh, or let's imagine even that there were policies that uh, encouraged people to have fewer children but uh, didn't require them to have fewer children, didn't attach prison terms and uh, the death penalty and all sorts of things for having, for having yeah. babies, uh, then that might be acceptable. But then there are gonna be a whole host of other policies, like an outright prohibition on procreation. Well, first mm -hmm. of all, that's not gonna happen in any democracy. And uh, in any autocracy or oligarchy, there'd be severe resistance to that. And that might cause all kinds of other evils uh, it's, it's not a good policy to go down that route. So I think we need to sort of recognize the limitations on our heart. I don't want to be too pessimistic about what any individual can do, mm -hmm. but uh, there is a long history of dangerous utopianism where people have some ideal society, some ideal world, ideal world that they're imagining, and now they believe that any means are permissible to that end. And they bring about untold... Uh, suffering and evil. Right. And is, in the end, they really attain their goal. In fact, they never attain their goal. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to learn from the mistakes of the past and not make the same mistakes again. Okay. A um, couple more questions. Uh, are, would you be in favor, um, speak, you know, just in terms of ending uh, sentient life, are you in favor at all? Or do you think it, it, there is an ethical way of sterilizing animal life? Again, there are lots of problems there. So if you sterilize things, let's imagine you sterilize predators and now prey species increased in number and more of them were dying of disease and of old age and of starvation because their numbers haven't been checked by predators. Well, you may have done more harm than good. Uh, let's imagine that you try to uh, extend this to uh, to prey species. Well, how many prey species and what would the effect be on the ecosystem? Would that lead to more suffering down the line? And mm -hmm. the, all these unknowns and complexities. Right. Uh, but d does that mean that sort of small scale sterilization um, may be appropriate? Absolutely. I can think of all kinds of circumstances where, uh, where, where that is the lesser of, of the evils. 
So let's just take a, a, a domesticated animal, a companion animal, like a dog or a cat. Mm-hmm. There's some harm to that animal in subjecting it to the surgery of sterilization. Uh, and so it's not like there's no ethical question there, right. but it's much better, I think, that you do that than that there be piles more puppies and kittens, many of whom are going to be so-called euthanized because they, they can't be homed, right. uh, and others which are going to suffer and eventually die anyway. Uh, so there I think that sterilization is entirely appropriate. And then there may even be some circumstances in the wild where instead of culling animals, you can introduce a contraceptive into the food or the water supply or something and mm-hmm. uh, prevent killing animals. They, they, sterilization or contraception is going to be much better than, than killing animals. So they can imagine right. scenarios where that would be true. But if you're thinking you're going to sterilize all sentient life, I can't see that happening without adverse circumstances, adverse consequences. Maybe in the future, I can't discount the possibility entirely, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Okay, thank you for giving your thoughts on that. Um, let's say we were to extinct sentient life on planet Earth, but the planet still remained. What would you do from there? Um, there is, a, like, as I was saying before, there is this fear that it could arise again. Um, and so to make sure that no, nothing sentient ever, I mean, and this is leaving out for <laughs> at least a moment, you know, the possibility of life on other planets. Um, mm-hmm. it, to make sure that life never arose again, would you think at that point it would be permissible to destroy the planet? Well, just think about the practicalities of this. So there are no more sentient beings. Who's going to destroy the planet? Well, we, I mean, we certainly have access to a lot of technology that could make that happen after we're gone. You mean you sort of you leave explosives or things behind to destroy the planet afterwards? Perhaps. I mean, if it, w- if it would be necessary at that point in a completely hypothetical mm. antinatalist world. Mm. I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that. I mean, okay. I can imagine it, I can imagine it in, a, in a theoretical sense, but I can't imagine the practicalities. I don't know what okay. it would do to literally destroy... Uh, the the earth you can destroy the environment on the earth we're doing a great job of that (laughs) but um but how would you destroy the earth would we have enough explosives to do that i I can't imagine practically how that would happen so this again is where i would say you know there's maybe thought experiments that you engage in but they're hardly a priority the priority is that we now have a world teeming with suffering sentient beings uh, we can do very little about that, but there's some things that we can do. We should be directing our attention to what, to what we can do rather than these really uh, remote possibilities, if they really are practical possibilities at all. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I have just a couple of questions actually uh, directly from Inmendum, if I can ask you those. Mm-hmm. Um, based on reaction that you, reactions that you've received over the years, is there anything that you would change about Never To Have Been if you had the chance to rewrite it in retrospect? What parts would you maybe more emphasize or provide more arguments on? Or are there any parts that you would um, perhaps not include in a revision? I think the main thing I would have done is not used pleasure and pain is the exemplars of bad things and good things, but rather just spoken directly of benefits and harms. I was clear in the book that, that pleasures and pains were really exemplars of good and bad things that could happen to people. 
but too many people have got fixated on pleasure and pain and even gone so far as yeah. to suggest that I'm a, I'm a hedonist. And so mm -hmm. it's turned out to be distracting. And that's why in one of the replies that I wrote to critics, I think I did phrase the, uh, the argument more generally in terms of uh, benefits and harms. Um, do you regret at all making it a human-only argument? Now, I know in our previously we talked about that you did include some material about animal life. If you were to go back, do you, do you feel that you would include more about all sentience or make that more clear within the book? Um, and I, I would like to also add to that, I mean, do you think that perhaps in the future you'd have any plans on writing a more sentiocentric antinatalist tome? Well, I don't think... I think it's true that I, I didn't consider animals. Uh, so uh, I, I think I was quite explicit that the arguments there apply to all sentient life and that I was just going to focus on humans. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think I would change that now because I think there is some value in focusing on human beings. That's where these arguments are most threatening. If, mm -hmm. um, if, if I suggest that some poisonous snake that is uh, leading to the deaths of people and livestock and things like that ought to be made extinct. There'd be a lot of humans who'd get on board with that. Or if mm -hmm. there were sharks that were causing uh, lots of human uh, deaths in, in particular bays and things, then, uh, and I suggested the extinction of those sharks, a lot of people would get on board with that. The antinatalist arguments, I think, are most threatening when they are self-directed, when they're directed to our own species. And so there's some value in confronting that case. As long as you make absolutely clear, as I believe I did, that the arguments also apply to other species. Yeah, I actually, I, I, I just a slight pushback on that. I know we're mm. running out of time, but I, I mean, I, I do actually think that um, nature still is this... It, it, that the optimism bias uh, is particularly strong in people when it does come to nature and that there are a tremendous number of people that I've spoken to that are very on board with a humanocentric antinatalism mm. because they do believe that human beings are evil and have done all this destruction, which mm. they most certainly have, um, not arguing with that. But when it comes to any kind of philosophy that's saying, you know, nature is... Uh, quote unquote bad, or that it there's that really the bulk of the suffering in the world is in nature, is in animal life. Um, mm. They get very upset um, mm. that, and and I don't believe that a, a lot of material in the past has ever really truly made that argument, so to speak. Um, and and people do consider it to be a truly alien and um, alarming concept. Mm. I I agree with you about that. Uh, and there is actually a growing philosophical literature on the suffering of wild animals. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there are two things I'd say. First of all, if you're speaking about the predatory species, then what you've got is a sort of animal equivalent of the misanthropic argument. And given that the misanthropic argument is not the focus of better never to have been, uh, I would not include that kind of argument with respect to animals. There is an of wild suffering, and that is... Uh, of uh, prey species and also of predators as themselves sufferers. And there I agree that uh, the arguments that I make about not bringing a human being into existence also apply uh, to those beings. And I do agree with you that there is some uh, resistance to recognizing that among some people in the animal kingdom. I do think that's worth writing more about.
Okay. Uh, one last question for Enmendum. Do you think there is any moral or ethical or decent or respectable argument in defense of torturing animals for human medical progress? So, um, in other words, he's asking whether I think there are any good arguments for using animals in animal experimentation. Yeah, which is something he would not agree with. I'm, mm. I'm very confident, but yeah. There are arguments in favor of using animals, just like there'd be arguments in favor of using human beings. Uh, mm -hmm. as, as experimental subjects. So if you're suggesting there are no arguments, uh, that would, I think, not be wise. The question is whether the arguments on balance are good arguments. Uh, and I would imagine that utilitarians would say they've got to get these some circumstances where experimenting on a living being is morally justified, namely those circumstances in which you could produce more good by doing so than uh, by abstaining from the experiment. Um, of course, people who believe that humans and animals have rights would say, well, even if you're going to produce more good uh, by doing these experiments, this is not an acceptable means, you may not do that. So here again, I think it does depend on what your background theoretical view is. Okay. I, I, my, my view is that uh, almost all animal experimentation that's currently done, I think, is, uh, is inappropriate, yeah. is wrong. Yeah. Uh, but just as I think there is some human experimentation that is justified, including pediatric experimentation that is justified. In other words, when you're dealing with a non-consenting human. So I think in principle, there might be uh, some forms of animal experimentation that are justified. But there would have to be ones in which the interests of animals were weighed much, much more heavily than they are now. They'd have to be weighed in the same sorts of ways, controlling for the relevant variables, as uh, human children are. So if you draw blood from a, a child, for example, as part of an experimental study, that causes pain to that child, but the child may have no benefit from the experiment. But there are very few people who think that you'd not be justified in enrolling a child in an experimental um, study if it involved drawing blood for research purposes. So long as you had parental consent and there were appropriate safeguards and the risks were, were very low, there might be some comparable, uh, comparative argument that you could make with regard to animals. But that sort of experimental regime looks nothing like the experimental regime that we have at the moment. Just sort of a comment. I very much believe that antenatalism and ethylism together are essentially like the last civil rights movement, that there's really nowhere to go from there with ethics, the right to not be imposed on. Um, and I just sort of wondered if you sort of saw it in the same kind of way, or if you think that's a, a appropriate way to look at it. Well, it depends what you mean by the last civil rights movement, because there's one sense in which I think what you say is correct. Uh, if somebody is not brought into existence, well, then there are no further human rights issues uh, for those beings. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're suggesting that there are not other important human rights considerations oh, no. we still need to attend to, right. uh, then I, I would disagree. No, and I'm not saying yeah. that. I, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that they're they're all right, right. Uh, certainly nothing of this kind, except um, for the imposition. And then I just, yeah. except for the right, exactly. Yeah. Was there any other misconceptions that you wanted to clear up in this episode? Because even though you cleared up a lot in this mm. uh, in this recording, um, I mean, you're you've definitely given some ammo for more debate in the community. Um, because yeah, like a lot of people thought you were a native vegetarian and a hedonist. So now that you cleared that up, it's like. You know, was there anything else you wanted to clear up? Uh, nothing comes to mind immediately. <laughs> I think we had a good opportunity there to uh, 
undo some of those misconceptions. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Like, that's, yeah. And it may well be the things I've said are going to be controversial amongst the community that you, that you're obviously much more familiar with than I am. Uh, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> anyway, um, the, I suppose the general point I want to make is, you know, when people disagree, let's how people can disagree nicely. I mean, we have done here in this in this in this discussion. Yes. But more generally, what I, I all too often I encounter vitriol in response to views that I hold, and I just find it unproductive and sad, really, because if we can engage with people who disagree with us we can actually learn something from what they've got to say. We may alter our own views. They may alter their views. Uh, so what I would just generally do is, if people disagree with anything I've said, give me the best arguments back and I'm happy to consider them. Yeah, I mean, I think it does. Um, there is, I can say that there is a, uh, a, a large variety in the way that people deal with um, with in this community but i think that does kind of speak to just how many types of people mm. are interested in this subject um i mean it, it really does appeal to people from like so many different walks of life and educational backgrounds and um so that's that that buffet is rather interesting even though sometimes it does get rather vitriolic um which you know at times too is very useful i think um, so I want to just say uh, thank you so much, Professor Benatar, for being with us today. It's an absolute honor having you with us. Um, there is no question uh, in any way, shape, or form that you have changed antinatalism forever. You have inspired myself and so many. Uh, th thank you for everything that you have done to illuminate such an important idea in the world uh, and for everything that you've tried to do uh, in, in the hopes of eliminating suffering and harm. So thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you very yeah. much. Absolutely. This podcast was made possible through the generous donations of other antinatalists during our The Prevention of Unnecessary Harm fundraiser. So on behalf of everyone working on exploring antinatalism, thank you for making this show happen. In our next episode, we will be speaking with Les Unite of Vehement, the voluntary human extinction movement. If you have questions for Mr. Les Knight that you would like asked on the show, please reach out to us on any of our social media sites. Once again, this has been Old Fan. You can find me at Forever Wolf Films on YouTube, as well as keep up with my daily antinatalist news updates at Antinatal News on Twitter. Please follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Come chat with us on the Rogue Philosophy Antinatalism Discord, and email us at exploringantinatalism at gmail.com. The podcast can be listened to on our YouTube channel, Exploring Antinatalism Podcast, as well as Buzzsprout and iTunes. We also have a new website, still under construction, www.exploringantinatalism.com. Podcast artwork donated by the incredible Life Sucks. All the best, and bye for now. Mm -hmm.